The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the novelist Guy Kennaway, who's recently won the Bollinger Everyman P.G. Woodhouse Prize for Comic Fiction, and his new book is the very, very funny Good Scammer, which tells of the dealings of a Jamaican con artist and the sort of slightly hapless Englishman who becomes his literary amanuensis. Guy, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me onto it. It really means I, I listen to this podcast, and it means a lot to be on it. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. I've enjoyed your book enormously. But as I, I was saying just before the podcast, I was slightly primed to expect a non-fiction book because when I first heard from you, you said you know there was this scammer who more or less made me write his story at gunpoint, and yet it's a novel. Tell me how this book came about. Well, you know, I always find it a bit hard to, to make a big division between non-fiction and fiction because I just see it as narrative. It obviously has to have a name for marketing purposes, but this book is somewhere in that gray area between the two. And the reason that it is fiction is that it needed to be shaped. And also, I felt it was like putting myself into a very dangerous position. For instance, if we used real names and all that sort of stuff. So self-preservation. But it, it first came because this guy came to me, who I knew to be a scammer. I'd known him. I'd be, I mean, I've lived in Jamaica for about 35 years in the same house, in the same community which is not a gated tourist community. It's a Jamaican community. I don't know any white people in Jamaica. And he came to me and he announced to me, and I knew he was a big scammer. He got out of his big BMW and he said, I picked you to write my book, book of my life, because I'm so important and uh, I'm such a big man. And I said, well, I can't possibly do that for so many reasons. But one, I don't write to order. I don't write biographies to order. I think you find on the internet, you'll find some people who will do that for you. And two... It's, uh, you know, you, you, if you're going to do it, you need to get a black writer. And I would recommend a young one and, if possible, a female one, because that way you will increase your chances of getting this book published and read. And he, when, he, when I said that to him, I remember him looking at me as if I was completely insane. And he said, no, 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 no the whole point is we need an old white man like you who knows everything, who's got all the context. I said, I wish it were thus, but things have changed rather. <laughs> and the third reason that you can't, I can't do it is because I'm not very keen on being killed. And although the story of scamming, telephone scamming in Jamaica, which started around just around the millennium, started off very, very peaceably and gloriously, a fantastic gold rush with no violence and no threats of violence, it did turn dark towards the end. By the time he came to see me, you know, it was a, it was a dark place and things had gone quite nasty. And I said to him, I'm scared, you know, I'm scared of writing about, about you. And he said... Do you know who Mario Puzo is? So I said, how the hell do you know who Mario Puzo is? <laughs> you know, I'm a bit smarter than you think. And it turned out to be true. He's absolutely brilliant. That was a lovely, lovely man, incredibly clever. And he said, Mario Puzo, he wrote about the, uh, the mafia, but they never killed him. So I said, that is true. That is true. He said, you, you know, he wrote a book called The Godfather. I said, I was aware of that, yeah. And he said, and they make a film of it. And I said, I'm aware of that too. And he said, but they never killed him. And he, then he said, why? What, why? So I said, well, I don't really know. He said, I will tell you why. Because he, Mario Puzo glamorized 
the mafia. And that is what you're going to do to us. You're going to glamorize us and we're going to protect you. And uh, you're not going to get any trouble from us. So uh, I still said no. Uh, but they, I mean, the mafia did absolutely love Puzo, didn't they? They did. I they, they did. And I'm sure cow- <laughs> famously. I don't know the great cowboy novelists, I'm afraid, but I bet that the cowboys loved them. And you know, he then came back and back and back and back. And by the time I agreed to do it, I said, I realised that it's so much better than taking a an ambiguous moral position or aesthetic position. I was just going to really back them and and think of them as James Kahn or Robert De Niro in The Godfather rather than, oh my God, these are terrible, murderous people. We can't depict them in a good light. And I thought, I'm going to put them in a good light. And But as I got into the subject more, as I got closer to him, and, I, and he totally charmed me, he's an absolutely amazing guy, I found it much more easy to see his point of view, and I was much more sympathetic to him. And um, so it was quite easy to write very flatteringly about them, at the same time, hopefully saving my skin. Luckily, I don't think many scammers are listening to The Spectator <laughs> Uh, uh, book, 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 podcast. You never. <laughs> well, we must hope not. I mean, let, let's keep the no names, no patrols system in any case. Um, <laughs> in case the scammers or the FBI, for that matter, are listening in. But your your unnamed guy who appears in the in the book as Bangas, um, yeah, Bangas, and Bangas. Sorry, Bangas is King also Scar- the Jamaican word for barter, like a barter phone. Ah, uh, okay. It's the story of Bangas, which allows you to kind of tell the story of scamming as, a, as an industry from its birth right up to, to where it's got to now. Is Bangers' story essentially that of the guy you were, were dealing with? Did he span that period? Yes, because I only saw it from the outside, of course, so I needed him to explain what was going on. I remember 2002, 2003, a summer afternoon, sitting in a bar, like a shed, wooden shed, on my own, and seeing a, a hot day, it was humid, they said the breeze stands still, and a young man, a youth, walking in and putting on the bar a wad of cash, the like of which I'd never ever seen in 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 my community. I mean, that is a totally poverty-stricken community, and this young lad put this huge. They have a word for it actually, which was a brink, which I realised was half brick because they're brick shaped, because I saw them many many times afterwards, and also alluding to Brink's mat who were the people who moved the cash around. <laughs> very, very patois. They could brink. We have a brink. And he put his brink down and he bought everyone a drink. And, of course, I knew enough about Jamaica that I never mentioned it to anyone and I pretended I hadn't seen it. And Because what doesn't concern you, you do not put your nose into. But um, that was the beginning. That was the first time. And over the following three or four years, this sort of waterfall of money arrived into this community through these youth. And I didn't really know where it was coming from. Nobody asked too many questions. and But I could see there was suddenly a lot of money. In this little tiny bar, which used to have six red stripe and a hot, and some dragon stout and maybe one or two bottles of cheap pop, suddenly on the top shelf, there was Hennessy, it was before Grey Goose, Hein Brandy, and then they started getting champagne. And I mean, there would be bottles of Krug champagne there. And I used to walk to this absolutely rundown wooden shack shelf <laughs> with bottles of Krug there, which they would then drink, put into a cup and put what's this thing called Boom, which is the Jamaican version of, of Red Bull on top of their Krug champagne. And uh, I realized then that there was something absolutely mammoth going on, but it, it really took him to him 
25 years later, he turned up, not the same, that, that, not that lad. But 25 years, this, this man turned up and he told me what was going on, what was the other side of the story. And so I sort of put the two of them together. And what, I mean, I'm curious again, you say he, he obviously wanted to be glamorized. He wanted his position as you know the big man of scamming to be recognized yeah. in your book. But as much as you're saying you know, you're anxious that somebody's going to shoot you for making this known, presumably other people whose identities would have been inferrable from the book. I mean, wouldn't it put him in the frame? His vanity is so overweening and his, and his love of his own brilliance and his pride in his success is, is greater than his fear of being caught, of being charged, of being extradited, of being in trouble. And one of the things I love about it, he was he even really, Sam, in the last year since the book's gone into production and everything, and I've said, look, you know, this this is about to really happen. And he would want to be meeting me in public and all that. And I said, you know, you don't seem to understand that people are going to, when this book comes out, they're going to remember seeing you and me in a bar together. You really have to think about that. And he would always poo-poo me and say, no, it's absolutely fine. And I felt he quite wants to be associated with it, or rather it, he, he doesn't want to miss out on it because he's, he, he's, he's, he's so keen on his, on his story to be told. But how it plays out in the next few months is going to be interesting to see. And is he the sort of kingpin you describe? I mean, as you describe the sort of trickle-down thing going on here where Banger's in the book, he gets a list of leads for people to phone up and con, most of them in the you know, United States, and then he sort of shares it around. You know, he doesn't treat it as a trade secret. And he creates a sort of gigantic pyramid scheme of... Yeah, of, what, what I call a global... You know, telephone robbery. Yeah, a, a global centre of excellence for the scamming trade in, in our villages, <laughs> three or four villages up the road. Because he did share those lists and he shared those scripts with everyone he could and he encouraged all his friends to do it. And that was one of the things when we were talking about it that I thought, oh, that's charming and I wanted to write about him. Another unusual thing about him is that he has a very unusual sex life for a West Jamaican man, is that he's a real one-woman guy and he has this phenomenal marriage with this girl right from the beginning, woman, I should say, to now. And I, I, it's, that's very, very unusual in Jamaica and I admired that hugely. And um, also, he, he was very unviolent. He, he, he made his fortune without killing anyone. And that had not ever happened in Jamaica. The only way they could get their money, uh, their hands on money, was through drug dealing or through theft. And they were the first generation. They were kind of nerds, really, because they understood about phones, SIM cards, bank accounts. You know, they, they were sort of nerds. And they made their money without violence. In addition to which, I remember something else that was very charming about him is that he, one of the marks of the scammers is that they love to bleach their skin. They're very, very keen bleachers. And so they take these lotions and these drugs and these powders to, I should say heighten, I mean, lighten the color of their skin. And he was always very against that. And it's a really interesting subject, bleaching. It, but, but, uh, but anyway, all these facts together, I thought he was quite an interesting bloke. It certainly is, but what I'm interested why is the scamming kind of industry associated with bleaching? Is that a generational thing because they're of a generation? Um, I mean, has there been a sort of backlash against the sort of black pride of a previous generation well, or what's? There are many black people in Jamaica, mainly amongst the middle classes, but not entirely, who, but the Rastas, for instance, who will talk against bleaching. 
But these young guys, they say to me, they would come round to my house, they'd see me sunbathing. They'd go, well, what, are you, what are you doing? And I'd go, oh, I'll get, try and get some tan. And they say, well, so you can change the color of your skin, but when we try and change the color of our skin, it's like it's a problem for you. So I'd say, well, let's go and have a drink. We won't have a drink. And I'd say, the thing is, there's a kind of racial element about you changing the color of your skin, which there isn't with me getting a suntan. And I think that's probably what, what worries me. And they'd laugh at me and just say, it's just the way, it's just a look. It's nothing to do with race. Can't you see that? I would, you know, we would ridicule me for being critical of them. So I, I you know, withdrew drew the remark and I said, look, do what the hell you want. It's your body. I don't know why I'm so touchy, why we're all so touchy about it. But anyway, he didn't believe in bleaching. Uh, this scamming kind of industry, I mean, funny enough, reading your book, largely because there's so much patois in it, put me in mind of it, of it being a sort of companion piece to Marlon James's A Brief History of Seven Killings, which I imagine you're aware of. I don't know if you'll have read it. Oh, well, I think Marlon's an absolutely brilliant writer, absolutely fantastic writer. In fact, I have read A Brief History of Seven Killings, and I liked it. But his masterpiece is his first book, which is called Book of the Night Woman, which is set during slavery and is for a white person to read. I mean, it, was, it, it silenced me. I read it in Jamaica, and I could not look my friends in the eyes for about four or five days. I mean, stunning book. I, I, I thought it was better than Brief History of, of, of Seven Killings, but uh, still, he's the master. I sent this book. I said, I said, you don't know me, Marvin James, and I'm a white guy, and I'm not gay, and I've got a feeling it's going to be quite hard to get through to you on that basis. But I lay my manuscript in front of you because the publishers have asked me to get a puff on it. And I said to them, I refuse to have anyone on this book except for Marlon James, because he is the only person who knows what I'm trying to do. And he's the only person who can really judge it. Unfortunately, he didn't get back to me. But uh, there we go. That's, uh, <laughs> well, he's a busy man, this Chase. But but the 80s, you know, I mean, his, I'm just interested because his novel, that novel in particular, deals with that 80s epidemic of kind of quasi-politicised and drug and gun violence. Yes. What's the sort of rise the scamming industry, a kind of successor industry to that particular criminal enterprise? You know, it was a sort of friendly, nobody gets killed version of it, or was it something that's always run in parallel? No, it came afterwards. And I think that the political violence, I have to say for Jamaica, there are many, many wonderful things about them. But one of them is it's got a very effective democracy. They run very good elections. And there is never a dispute about who wins the elections and everybody accepts it and gets on with their life. And the elections are lively and, there's, and, there, and people go and queue up and vote. And there is often a change of government and there's never any, now there's never any violence about it. Now, I'm not quite sure what happened, because you see, this is more in Kingston. Marla James is down in, he was born and raised in Kingston. And that is a very long way away from, I, I'm like in Penzance and he's like in, <laughs> and, and he's in Hackney. And so it's their two different worlds. But uh, something happened. I, I think the IMF stepped in and started, as soon as Michael Manley stopped flirting with, with Cuba, the Americans in the IMF realized that they were going to have to help out if they were going to get the sort of outcomes that they wanted to their elections, which is center, center right or center governments, which they've always had. And the IMF Run if you look at the, the biggest the, the, the countries with the biggest overdraft. I bet you Jamaica's in the top three of the world. They have this huge overdraft with the IMF and the Chinese, and they know that the Americans are, are going to pick up the bill, and they don't care, and they and they have no attempt to balance their books. 
and they just run this massive overdraft. And I think since they've been given that line of credit, the country's become more prosperous and that kind of nasty, really nasty political violence uh, has stopped. There is still gang violence, though, loads of it. Well, there is a, I mean, there's an undercurrent in the book of politics. I mean, it's an absolutely delightful kind of comic novel, but the seriousness in it. And, I mean, there's one point at which uh, your, your kind of corrupt politician has, you know, you say he's gone off to the West, I can't remember, it's Harvard or so, he's, he's, he's gone through law school. He's, and he, he, as a young man, you say, he had a vision of Jamaica as being a kind of Switzerland in the Caribbean. It's a land of kind of perfect probity and, um, you know, functioning law. And, and, and quiet. And quiet. <laughs> and yet, you know, he's, by this stage, he's like, no hope of that. Why do you think that never did work out? What's the culture and what's the, the, the justification, if you like, for your guy scamming? Well, I think that, um, let me say that two parts. I think that the word, I mean, any Jamaicans uh, listening to this will know when I say I'm going to give one word to try and sum up the Jamaican culture, at least the Jamaican culture from West Jamaica, but maybe for, which is what I know about, I don't know about the West Jamaica, is unruly. You know, they are unruly. Their DNA had to get through 230 years of slavery, the people in my community. And they are very, very tough, and they are extremely hard to tell what to do. They're unruly, and they let, they wear our shirts with unruly written on them, and they have lots of songs about being unruly and about being non-compliant. And actually, that's one of the reasons I love about it, because as the, in the 30 years I've been there, my world in Britain, in some sense, has become more and more and more compliant as we've had to fix into more and more international agreements and so forth. So when you go to Jamaica and you find that they respect no international agreements, or they sign up to everything and then they just welch on it, or they don't bother with it. So they so that they're extremely lawless. Uh, and I was going to say, there's a lovely thing where the FBI want to deal with this scamming thing, and the Jamaicans are just not having it. The Americans were just outraged that the, that the, uh, that the Jamaican politicians were perfectly happy for it to go on. And they said, it's an American problem. It's not, an, it's not, it's not a Jamaican problem. You're the, the idiots sending the money down. Go and speak to your people. And uh, it, it really annoyed me. There's some, I saw some great interviews with the American ambassador who was angry that he was being laughed at. But they, just to go back to what you asked, the first time I heard the word reparation, the first time I heard it was from a scammer in West Jamaica. And I remember listening to him thinking, Oh, that was kind of weird nonsense. It was a typical kind of odd Jamaican reparation. I really, you know, I sort of knew what I knew it was a word, but it just seemed so strange in their mouths. And then uh, the next time I heard, I remember reading something in the Jamaican Gleaner that there was going to be a department of reparation at the University of West Indies. And I think it was in Barbados. And the piece said, not only were they going to look generally at the overall cost of the bill of slavery, but they were going to investigate the individual families who were involved in, in the, pro who, who took the profits. And I remember reading that going, you can't do that. That's, that's how can, you know, being really confused by that. Whereas now we're, it, it's happened as, as we all know. And they, and they, I'm sure that department is very, but I've not been down there actually. I would love to go to that department. So I'm going to go in there. But these kids in my community knew that word and they could see what it meant to them. And whether or not they were justified, let's set that aside, you know, for a moment. It definitely gave them strength and the power. Because when I said to him, the problem is bangers is that I cannot write a book about a thief. 
he said, I'm not a thief in Patois. I'm not a thief. I'm reclaiming stolen goods. That's what I'm doing. I am taking back what, has, what was taken from my family. I am not a thief. You would not call a thief someone who goes and takes back the car that, that someone stole off their father. And they believe certainly that their case has not been heard and it's not fair. And, and whether or not that's, that's right is for the reader to decide. But it certainly made them very determined when they got on the phone to con this money out of all these Americans. Huge sums of money. Huge, huge sums of money. What's your instinct, though? I'm intrigued, as you said, for the readers to decide in the context of the book whether this is a persuasive argument. What's your feeling about it? I definitely, you know, I live in Western England when I'm in Britain, and I, I must say I prefer Jamaica more and more. But I go to the cities of Bristol and Bath, and I also go to the town of Lucy, which is the little local uh, town to, to me in West Jamaica. And they were both built at about the same time, really. And Bristol and Bath, I notice, are magnificent, particularly Bath, magnificent, lavish cities. And Lucy, which is where m not most, a large amount of the money that came to make Bristol and Bath came from, came through, has got two stone buildings from the, from the uh, 18th century. And it's they're mean and they're tough and they're like bunkers and they're like prisons. They look like prisons to me. And uh, you just think... This is fairly extreme division of, of the spoils of this activity. And I don't find it at all hard to say that it's time to look at it again. And, and, if, and, it, and it's fair to look at it again and say, come on. It's just like on the most pragmatic level, all we're doing is we're setting off a massive crime wave by denying these poor people any kind of, well, one of the things they're denied is any kind of education. Like bangers is illiterate. Thank God, otherwise he could read my book. <laughs> so I said, I have to read it. I live in fear it's going to be on Audible, and I'm really going to be in trouble. <laughs> Is the actual guy called, called Bangers? Or... No, he's not called Bangers. But I, right. um, as I was writing the book, I read it back to him, and he would like shout at me and tell me I got it all wrong. But the fact that he can't read and write in 2023, and they're kids of 17, they cannot read or write. You know, it is absolutely... and. You know, and while they can't, and while the word reparations is going around, it is not going to go away. They are getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And the, and, it, in, and the injustice, I know it's not our fault that the Jamaican government has such a ludicrous education policy, but I think not to acknowledge it is just, just so rude. And when Prince William came down, I happened to be in Jamaica at the time, it was what I had to hide for about three days afterwards when he made an absolutely, you know, toe-curlingly embarrassing speech. And then we had that image of him with his hand through the fence between him and the children. Oh, you, you wouldn't have known it. But I mean, it was a really embarrassing visit, him and Kate to Jamaica, soon after his marriage to Kate, I think it was. And I, I just thought, you just have to stand up and just say a few words of patois to these people and just say, you know, oh, this is a bit of a situation that we're in and we need to have a look at this, rather than speak plummy English and say, no, not even refer to the legacy of slavery. And I think it's become, it's become something that people are scared of talking about. And I just, I like, even, even Richard Charkin, my, the, uh, the, the owner of my publisher, said, Guy, but you know, if you give it to the Jamaicans, you've got to give it to the, where are you going to stop? And I said, you know, this is, where are you going to stop is such a bad argument. It's, the argument is, where are you going to start? You know, where are you going to start? And these guys 
They've, from my opinion, they, you know, after 250 years of abject poverty, they've earned it. They've earned at least some acknowledgement. And I hope this book goes some way towards that. I'm interested in how you came to be in Jamaica in the first place. I mean, your proxy in the book, Willie, is a, is a writer who, who started out writing the sorts of books about Jamaica that, you know, white men write. It shows, you know, Princess Margaret and Ian Fleming and Noel Coward and so forth. And and he's kind of a bit washed up by the time... Nicholas Shakespeare. Who's, yes, like Nicholas Shakespeare. Whose podcast I listened to with you, I listened very close. <laughs> yes, I imagine you saw Nicholas at some point while he was in, in Jamaica touring around. He actually wrote a letter to me saying... Could I shine any light on Ian Fleming's Jamaican experience? Now, I'm obsessed by Ian Fleming's Jamaican life. I say not obsessed. I'm very interested. And I look at it and I speak to everyone I can who knew him or who was close to him. And I read everything I can. Because he didn't live a long way away from me. And he lives in a pretty similar house to me. And I think he's a really great writer. And I said to Nicholas Shakespeare, this is what it is. Jamaica is an incredibly important part of James Bond. It, Jamaica was not just a place where Ian Fleming went from February to March and wrote every Bond book. Or rather, if it is, why did he have to go there every single time? And the clue is he had to go there because there was some osmotic process. He was receiving the intoxicating Jamaican unruliness and he was putting it, whether consciously or not, into Bond who is by no means, although he was described as a kind of English gent, he, he wasn't anything, he's, you know, he wasn't far off my father's age. And my father, he was quite a well-known writer, my father. And I remember, and my father was a bit of a goer as well, but I mean, he was timid compared to James Bond, you know, sexually and, and in all regards. You know, the, the, even the kind of the ones who were out there, like David Cornwall, they were very timid men. I remember meeting them when I was a child. They were timid men compared to James Bond. And but there's a significant thing about Bond is that he loves guns, quick sex, fast cars, smoking, booze, and he's incredibly patriotic, which is a very Jamaican feature, a very very Jamaican characteristic, and not at all English. It's we have not been patriotic, you know, the upper middle classes, the upper classes in Britain since 1918. Really. We have been in a kind of anxiety about what, who Britain is and how we feel about it. But the Jamaicans, you see the flags everywhere. They're absolutely out and out, totally patriotic. And, and really, and if you just take the race away, he made a Jamaican gangster, Ian Fleming. He made a gangster who walked around, shot people, got in a fast car and buggered off. And the Jamaicans, <laughs> when Dr. No came out, it was the first time that they had seen their country glamorized. And like, really look amazing. And in the center of it was this huge, attractive, sexy gangster. And that had a massive effect on Jamaica. Because by 1968, Desmond Decker wrote that song, which starts 007, 007, Ocean's Eleven. Dem a loot, dem a shoot, dem a whale in shanty town. So he was talking about 007. And when Nicholas uh, Shakespeare said on your podcast, I, I wrote the quote down, he said, there's a kind of magic about him, uh, which is irreducible. I just thought, that's Jamaican, mate. You just didn't, you, I, I wrote the whole letter saying this. You obviously just thought, oh, bollocks, guy doesn't know anything. <laughs> because the thing about the Jamaicans is that their word is they have swag. And we would say swagger. They have swagger. And Bond has swag. That, that's the thing about him. He has swagger. 
And you can't do it unless you have real swagger. And I don't think really Englishmen, I remember being Englishmen in my father's generation, they were, as I say, timid, stiff-necked and kind of all sort of, you know. But Bond had so sexy swagger. And I somehow think that Fleming, I don't think he was out in the bars like me because I know he didn't speak patois, but you can't help but feel it. And it was a, it's a fantastic tension, but where... You know, was it swag that brought you to the ends in the first place? No, I think licentiousness and the, and as when I first went there in the mid eighties, there were very small tourist industry. People were, were talking about that period of where there was like crazy kind of brief history of seven killings, and it really was nobody knew if it was safe or anything like that. So I was attracted to that, and I loved the licentiousness of it, which I think reading Ian Fleming had, had given me the idea of, and the drugs, and the music. And it just seemed like a kind of place where a young man you know, and his woman, I went I first with the woman who became my wife, and we fell in love there. And I got a little house there. We got a little house there at that time in the 80s. And it's just a, a fantastic, unruly, naughty, fun, never, ever boring, sometimes absolutely drive you crazy with frustration because it cause it's, can be so annoying, but it's never boring. Um, it's been a huge, huge thing in my life. But I've never been able to write about it. I wrote a book called One People in the 90s, and then I just felt, no, guy, as a middle-aged man, you cannot write about this black subject. It's just, it's this cultural appropriation, and you're going to have, you, you, you know, so I wrote all my books there, but none of, none of them about Jamaica until this guy walked into my porch and said, you're going to write my book. And I suddenly thought, oh, at last, I've got a way into this subject, which isn't basically tasteless, you know, which, which isn't sort of white man comes in and, you know, so it's sort of wise amongst the natives, you know, which is how it would have been perceived if I'd gone before. There's certainly a kind of degree of immersion there. I mean, the, the use of patois in the book, yeah, which is, you know, with fantastic texture to the reading, and it's often very funny. But you've got bangers saying that we don't want patois. And your, your figure absolutely insists. <laughs> I was outraged. He said, this is not why I hired you. <laughs> he, he remember one day he turned up with a dictionary. He said, you need this book. And I said, I, you know, I know that. I didn't know it all, but I know, I know a lot of that book. That's not the problem. We need some patois in it. He said, no, 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 no. You're going to let me down. You're going to make everyone think that I'm ignorant, idle if you put patois in. And I said, it is your language. It is, you know, we've had this struggle in Britain with the Welsh language, and it is so important to your identity that you're proud of it and that you see it. And Bob Marley, of course, totally understood it. And, you know whether it was No Woman, No Cry or Lively Up Yourself. You know, he was dropping in little bits of patois all the time. And, you know, but they're, they're still, because of what happened when the British left, they've had it drilled into them that patois is like a dirty a language for ignorant people. And what does Bob Marley say? Have good Bob Marley every time. Brainwash education to make us the fools. You know, I remember first hearing that thinking, oh, it's a simplistic and not very interesting couplet, but it's so, so true. They are educated in the English language, a language they do not speak. So only the middle classes and the upper classes can get an education. And they keep all of the real, you know, the, the people who are the large majority of the, of the Jamaicans, they keep them out of all of the professions, out of all of the economic activity. And I'm going to bore you for a moment here, but there's only two places they cannot keep the Patois-speaking Jamaicans out of. One is the music business right? Which Jamaica for its size is preeminent, absolutely amazing perform from reggae through to hip hop, you know, via dance hall, 
Jamaica is incredibly powerful because they cannot, you do not have to speak English to sing dancehall. And there's one other place where you don't have to speak English, athletics, track and field. Again, where Jamaica have an extraordinary record of champions. But all other professions, they keep them out, they make them do English spelling. See, they've not just got the problem of learning English, they've got the problem of learning English spelling, which is a total nightmare for them. So they all fail. The exams are done in English. They fail all their languages. They fail all, all their exams, and then they're popped out onto the street, and thank goodness they discovered scamming. I mean, I think of the cultural appropriation thing. As a you know elderly white guy in Jamaica... Do people double take when they hear you speaking patois, or do you not speak patois? Yeah, I do. I do speak patois, and um, I don't speak. I speak it okay. I speak it pretty well, but but I don't speak it. You know, I'm not. I'm not really fluent in it. I, I speak patois. It's not true. And I say to them, why are there no classes? I said in Catalonia, if you want to go and speak Catalonian, there is a free class in every single town, which is true. But here, there are no lessons for me to take in patois, and I have to learn it just by sitting in the bars and listening to you guys chat. And I, I guess wish they were, you know, I guess wish they would be open about patois and and see it's their power, it's their power, not their weakness. But it's a political problem that. But uh, no, I love to speak patois with them, and often the conversation flows off, and I lose the thread. But I can kind of tell what they're talking about, and then when I talk, they will have to slow down, or a guide plods out a few sentences, and then they will speed off again. But um, it's uh, it's a lovely language. And to get briefly reluctantly back to the scamming because I'm, I'm sort of interested in the turn it took I mean there's a lovely bit which I reads like it might be from life but perhaps it's too novelistic in which your proxy character discovers that in his early career Bagas has basically set up shop in his house while he's living in, in the UK did that happen to you? Yes and I just come back and I find all my furniture worn and, and, and you know scuffed and and I'd say, well, what has been going on while I, while I was away? And they would, as soon as I'd hopped on the plane, they would basically swarm all over my house, take my furniture out in the garden and sit, you know, in my yard and use it as their scamming office. Because he, as he said, it helped them feel like they'd already sort of slightly made it because it was a nice house on the coast. And uh, I was furious when I found out. Truly, now, as, as the novel goes on, he starts, I mean, you should maybe explain the nature of the scams because we're, I suppose we're very used to thinking of particularly Nigerian scamming. Is there a distinct Jamaican scamming tradition? Well, I, you know, something is that the, the characters who in the book who are called Gucci and Gabbana, they are based on a couple who he told me about. But I have a feeling that one of them was actually Nigerian. One of them was American. And I think they had brought it over from Nigeria. But that bit of history, he he wasn't so sure of because he only came into that call centre when it was already set up. So I had to read and look at that. But it, it looks to me like it's a joint enterprise of the Nigerians and the Jamaicans. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a high level cooperation. Diplomatic entente of sorts. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. The crucial thing about these uh, scams is they were all done by voice on telephone. Uh, they weren't done on the internet because it's pre-internet. Now it's mainly moved on to the internet. So this is where you have to ring someone up and you have to find a story credible enough to persuade them to send you some money. And they would make up all kinds of different stories. That they, The sort of core one was you've, you've won something, but in order to gain access to the huge prize, you have to send us down a handling fee or a taxation fee or a legal fee and just keep them paying and paying and paying until they ran out of money. 
And he used to enjoy making up all kinds. I mean, he makes like, the, the FedEx one I particularly love. I don't know if you, uh, you remembered it, where he, he pretends he's in FedEx in the accounts department and can transfer a huge amount of money out of FedEx without anyone knowing in accounts. And he, all he needs is a bank account to send the 17 million to. And I heard him do that often. And uh, then, of course, he would devise various problems which, which needed 500 or 1,000 or $5,000 to clear in order for the 17 million to plop into your bank account. But I mean, I heard him doing it. I heard him doing it all the time. The other very significant thing is that, that I, I learned about it was that they weren't cold calling. I said, how do you get these people to do these stupid things? And he said, they were working off lists compiled in America of people who made really bad decisions around money. Maybe people who had a lot of hard purchase agreements, which they defaulted on, big credit card bills that they defaulted on, or gamblers, or sort of people who made stupid decisions around money. They 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 compiled these lists, so they were they were ringing people who were vulnerable. Well, that does sort of bring you back to the sort of nagging point of. And you said, you know, you've been present in the room when you've been listening to all this, that, you know, the little old ladies in Iowa who are maybe mentally subpar or the, the you know, permanent desperate debtors, the, the vulnerable people they're targeting. You, you say you've listened in on these conversations. You've sort of actually watched the process happening. Did you not feel a little uneasy or a sense of kind of complicity in this, given particularly that, you know, most of the little old ladies in Iowa weren't the people who were were responsible for the slave trade, you know, which for Jamaica was, I think, an English colony, was it not? Yes. Well, there is that. And I did feel uh, once or twice, well, you know, bangers being bangers, like smiling at me as he was doing it. And I was sitting there with my notepad. And I remember a couple of points, he said, you have to speak to my supervisor and just handed me the phone. You know, and I, I said to him, don't ever do that again. And I said, hold on, Mr. Spencer's away from his desk. I'll, I'll, I'll give him two months back. And I just put the phone back down on the table. And I said, I said, don't do that again. And he said, them, love your accent, guy. Your accent got them. That All you had to say was Mr. Spencer's coming back to his desk. He said, I felt him change as you said that. I said, well, I'm not very happy about this. I know you are not to do that again with me. I'm not going to play that game again. So I was a bit, it's quite exciting though. Vibe me up. I thought, I'm really in there. I understand what this is about. I can. I'm now qualified to write about this, uh, rather than a sort of, you know, I'm qualified to write about it. But it is. It's it's, it's reprehensible. Some of it's absolutely reprehensible. A lot of the scans, I have to say, a lot of them involved making the the victims believe that they were a part of some either some taxation evasion or some criminal activity. Like they would often say, "You won eight hundred grand," and they go, "That's oh." Jesus Christ, say that again. They go eight hundred, and he'd say the figure again, and he'd go. But after tax, that's four hundred thirty-four thousand pounds. And you'd hear the person go, "Oh, well, really?" And he'd go, "Or we can go the tax-free route if you feel you've paid enough tax in America already." And they would go, "Well, tell me about the tax-free route." And then he had them. He knew that they were uh, evading tax, and from the moment they made that very well greedy and stupid decision, he had them. Then he had them. When they're going the tax-free route, that's what he was getting all, and that was a bad decision by those people that um, it cost them a lot of money. So they were, they were not only gullible, but they were up to something as well. Not all, but nearly all of the messages that I heard. And I put in the book, there is a balance between them. There are some, some are odd, but some are the old lady. Like the other man want. Yes. Did, did Bogus show any sign? I mean, you know, clearly he has a sort of ideological explanation for why what he's doing is okay. Did he ever show a twinge of conscience? Did he ever go... 
you know, I've had enough from this one person or actually they don't deserve it. Never. And I looked so carefully. I said, that you're terrible. You are, how can you do that? And he would just look with a lovely little smile and say, come on, time for a drink. Come on, let's go and have a drink. You need to celebrate. I never saw him. And I don't know, Sam, I don't know. I don't know if that bid had been cauterized from him or if he felt he was always justified from the point of view of the reparations and from the bad deal that he had had. And as he said, he's just getting back stolen money rather than stealing money himself. But I never saw or heard him say anything that he regretted. And I look, I, I, was, I was very keen if that moment happened to, to get it done. But I never saw him regret it. And they all seem to think it's a completely legitimate way of making money to be honest. They, they just think, you know, and he said to me, how can you talk to me about scamming guy? You know, you, in, in the, in the English High Commission, they are taking uh, 370 uh, pounds, British pounds, to make an application for a visa to Britain. And he said, I have friends who work in the High Commission, and it is a known fact that they're going to turn them down before they take their money. Don't talk about scamming to me, he'd say. He said, you know, you're doing you're still doing it to us. Now I don't know if that's true, but I suspect it is. The turn that the scamming industry takes from, you know, certainly wouldn't say a victimless crime, but a, a, a sort of jolly bloodless crime that has a kind of an anti prankster energy to it in the early part of your book. There is a shift that you describe that that it suddenly gets caught up in gun violence again. What, why did that shift take place? What happened then? Well, I think that the most significant factor, well, there were two factors. One was what happened in Haiti. There was that earthquake, and I think there was some, was just, I think, overthrow of a weird but quite long-standing government. And anarchy took over, and it's very close to Jamaica, Haiti. And boats started, they, they ran out of food in Haiti, ran out of loads and loads of uh, commodities and uh, stuff that they needed. And they would come over to Jamaica and they would buy stuff in Jamaica, um, not drugs at all, things like clothes and shoes. And the only currency that the Haitians had that the Jamaicans would accept was guns and ammunition. And suddenly there were a lot of guns and ammunition around. And then there were these very, very rich young men and this proved to be too tempting for the Jamaicans who hadn't made money out of scamming. And they bought the guns and they then started, you know, it became, a, it was so complicated. People were shooting each other and there were so many misunderstandings and mistakes. But it was basically because these guns arrived and at the same time, more pressure was put on by the CIA and the FBI, I think, and the IMF, um, the IMF. And so it was being squeezed from both ends, but and then into it was thrown these guns. And it became, as you say, a kind of wonderful waterfall of money that everyone was just getting soaked under and running around having a laugh into this quite dark place where if you, if you had a lot of money, they would come and try and steal it from you. Not visitors like me, but uh, from their own community, people who, they, you know, they, 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 turned on, they turned on each other. And that's only really just clearing up now, actually. It was nasty. So I see you say visitors like me, because you've lived in this community for 35 years. Is it still a little bit like, you know, one thinks of the sort of apocryphal East End of the craze where civilians are exempt? Um, it's, just like, it's just like someone saying, 
I wouldn't go to Sicily if I were you. I hear the mafia kill a lot of people. It would never stop you going on holiday in Sicily because the mafia are not going to kill you if you're not involved in one of their, you know, if you haven't crossed them. And it's exactly the same with Jamaicans. In fact, they take a strange delight. I know young men who walk around with a gun in the back of their pants and they take a strange delight in being really courteous to a totally unsuspecting white tourists who happen to stop by, who have little idea of what is, what is only about 14 inches away from them. And they, they would never hurt tourists. They would never hurt tourists. Apart from anything else, it would just cause so many uh, problems with them because the tourist industry is so powerful there. But um, they have no interest in having tourists. They'll, they'll kill their brother you know, for money, but they'll never have, they'll never have tourists. They've never had a white person. I mean, it's a... That's the truth. I've never had a one violent incident in 35 years. So I think, and you know, I go everywhere into wherever I want to go. So I think I'll say something for it. I should end by, by just asking so is, is Bangers happy with the book? Yeah, he's extremely happy and he has wild, wild uh, hopes and ambitions for it. So he explained to me the kind of sales that we're going to get and how it's going to be a huge TV series and all that. And I said to him, oh, you speak just like the, the writer of, with his first book. I said, little do you know of the reality. I said, prepare for a large sign of his bangers. And he goes, no, 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 guy, you don't know anything. You wait, this is going to work. <laughs> so he's cheered me up hugely. But I've, um, well, we'll, we'll see you we'll, we'll watch this space. <laughs> Guy Kenaway, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That's it. That was really enjoyable. Thank you. <laughs>